Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hi everyone and welcome to My Millennial Money Medical and this is part two of the tax efficiency series and we will continue on the theme of tax savings and some strategies you can employ. In part one, we focused on salary packaging and maximizing superannuation. So if you haven't listened to that episode, those are the two common things that healthcare workers can do and they can do it pretty effectively and easily to try and save on tax. If you want me to discuss a specific topic or if you have a specific question, don't hesitate to reach out via Twitter or via Facebook. For those of you that are new to the channel, there are three main aims. The first one is to be educated. To be educated about personal finances means you can improve your financial literacy. And that leads to the second aim. And that is to be empowered. And to be empowered to be able to take that knowledge back to your credentialed financial advisor so you can talk at a level that both of you can understand in. And the third aim is to be entertained. In this episode, we will consider some of the other strategies to employ when it comes to tax efficiencies, and particularly we'll look at investments as well. Now, the first strategy that you may want to consider is how you want to build wealth over time. Do you want to build wealth over time with dividends, or do you want to build wealth over time with capital gains, or maybe with a bit of both? Now, when you invest and the investments produce an income, that's called a dividend. And you still need to pay tax on the dividends. So, for example, when you buy a house and you rent it out, the rental income is assessable and therefore could potentially be taxable. Now, you can then offset the rental income against any costs associated with renting out the property. And if the costs are less than the rental income, you pay tax on the difference. It's as simple as that. Now, the tax that you pay on the difference is called your marginal tax rate because it gets added to your taxable income or your overall assessable income. In the share market, the dividends you may get work slightly differently. Now, if you invest in the Australian share market, the dividends make up a significant portion of your total returns. Now, historically, The Australian stock market, particularly the blue chip companies, tend to provide great dividends and they're very good for retirees because they provide stable income sources entering retirement. Now, most of the dividends in Australia, particularly with reputable companies, is what's called franked dividends. This means that dividends are given to the shareholder after the company has paid tax on the profits. Therefore, when the dividends are given there's a franking credit attached to them. These credits can then be used to offset any taxes you need to pay. 
So essentially what that means is when a company gives you a franking credit, it means they're giving you a credit for the tax that they've already paid on your behalf. Because in Australia, the ADO says that if a company pays tax on your behalf, then you can use that tax paid as your own. So you don't need to pay additional tax on that income already that you've paid tax on. Now, arguably then, a better way to save on tax is not to invest in companies which pay a huge amount of dividends, but rather keep a lot of their profits to reinvest back into their business. And that's called capital gains. So in other words, Berkshire Hathaway, which is famously owned by Warren Buffett, does this. Their company, they don't pay any dividends at all. Now, why is this technically more tax efficient? Well, it means that if you don't sell the stocks, it means you don't realise any capital gains. And that means technically you don't pay any tax. Now, there's been a lot of debate, particularly in the United States, about unrealised capital gains. Should they be taxed? Shouldn't they be taxed, etc.? Particularly with very high net worth individuals, you know, multi-billionaires, etc. But in Australia, if you don't realise your capital gains, in other words, if you don't sell your investments and your investments rise in value, you don't have to pay tax on that rise in value. And you only have to pay tax on that rise in value if you realise those capital gains. And realisation means if you actually sell the investment and actually make a profit on those investments. Now, when you do sell the investment though, how does the taxation work? Well, if you hold the investment for greater than 12 months in Australia, you get a capital gains tax discount of 50%. So technically, if you're investing in companies that don't pay dividends, provided the company's stock price goes up in value more than what you bought for it, then it's a reasonably tax-efficient way of investing because capital gains is taxed very differently to income. And of course, dividends is a form of income. So in terms of tax efficiency, one can say that investing in companies for growth and not for dividends technically can be a tax-effective way of building wealth over the long term. Now, to highlight this point, I just want to use an example. Amy is a share market investor and owns $200,000 in stocks. And the overall dividends she gets is around $6,000 and it's fully franked. In other words, it's franked dividends. To work out the franking credits, Amy will use a simple formula and that's basically 6,000 divided by 1 minus 0.3, where 0.3 is the 30% tax that's already paid by the company from their profits. And then you've got to subtract 6,000 from that equation. So in Amy's case, the franking credit from her dividends works out to be around $2,571.42. Now, Amy would have to declare her total dividend to be the actual dividend she got, $6,000, which is fully franked, plus the $2,571.42 in franking credits she has received. So the total dividend or the grossed up dividend before taxes is $8,571.42. 
Now, supposing after doing her taxes, after the end of financial year, it turns out that Amy owes taxes of, let's say, $5,000. Does she need to pay the whole $5,000? And the answer is no. She can use the $2,571 she has built up in franking credits to offset the tax payable. So she would only need to pay $2,428.57 in taxes. Now, what if Amy does her taxes and it turns out that she doesn't have to pay much tax at all after the end of financial year? So rather than $5,000, supposing Amy only had to pay $500 at the end of the financial year, what happens then? Well, it means that she would get a tax refund because remember... Amy's got a franking credit of $2,571.42, and she can use that to offset any taxation that she needs to pay. But in this case, she only has to pay $500. So then she tells the ATO, hey, look, I only have to pay $500, but I've got all these franking credits built up. So ATO, please, you need to pay me. And that's called a franking refund. So in this case, Amy gets a refund potentially of $2,071.42. So that's why it's actually quite lucrative, particularly in retirement, when your tax rate is actually quite low. And that's why retirees tend to invest in blue chip companies that pay great dividends, particularly franking dividends. Now, you need to check with your accountant for all these numbers, so make sure you do your due diligence, right? I've just done some basic calculations here. Now, the only thing is, during everyone's working life, we will be paying more tax if we use the dividend strategy, but it's still not a bad strategy. Now, supposing Amy chooses a capital gain strategy where she owns $200,000 in stocks, And most of these companies don't pay any dividend income at all. So this would mean that because she's not receiving any dividend income, she wouldn't pay any tax on those income because income is actually zero unless she sold some of her stock. And that means, let's say in three years time, the stock market for her has gone up and her $200,000 portfolio is now worth $250,000 then that means that if she sells, she has realized a capital gain. But if she doesn't sell, she hasn't realized a capital gain. So it's really important that everyone understands the word realization is. So in this case, this is how the capital gains discount works. Has Amy owned the stocks for greater than 12 months? And the answer is yes, she's owned it for three years. And let's say she sells all of it after three years and she gets $250,000. And her cost for the shares when she bought it was $200,000, which means roughly, you know, give or take minimal brokerage, her profit is therefore $50,000 over that three years. Now, because she's owned her assets for greater than 12 months, she gets an instant 50% discount on this. In other words, out of the $50,000 profit she's made, the capital gain is now discounted by 50%. So the capital gain now becomes only 25%. And then Amy needs to work out what her tax rate is. So supposing Amy's tax rate is 30%, this means her tax on the capital gains 
is 30% of $25,000, which is around $7,500. Now, if we didn't have a 50% capital gains discount rate, then Amy would have had to pay 30% on the entire $50,000 capital gain that she's had. So, if Amy uses the dividend strategy and there's also a capital gains at the end of it all, what happens? Well, it just means that Amy will need to pay taxes as she earns the dividend, less the franking credits, of course. And when she sells, she will also need to pay capital gains tax too, minus any discounts if she held the asset for greater than 12 months. So you can see that there's multiple ways of, you know, skinning the cat if you want to build wealth. You can, you know, just have uh, investments that produce just dividends and don't grow in capital value. You can have investments that grow in capital value and don't pay any dividends, or you can have a bit of both. And the general principles that I would say is that if you're really focused on growth and you're really focused on tax efficiency only, then it kind of makes sense to just invest in assets which don't pay any dividends. Because, you know, why pay tax when you don't need to? And just rely on the fact that hopefully the assets that you purchase go up in value over time. So to be tax efficient, um, you know, you kind of need to pick a strategy that works for you. Now, generally, my philosophy of investing is that I tend to invest in things that produce a capital gain over time. So, they're going to increase in value over time. But during that time, I would feel safer and more secure if it also paid some sort of an income. Because I tend to feel that if a asset doesn't rise in value over time and pay an income during that time, then essentially you're just speculating. So, um, hopefully that sort of explains the differences between dividends and how they get taxed. Uh, and also capital gains and how they get taxed. So you've got to pick a strategy and hopefully the strategy that's most tax effective for your investment philosophy. Now, the other way of saving tax, um, you know, particularly for healthcare workers, um, particularly for doctors and dentists, this one, is by trust accounts, although really anyone can do it. Now, basically, if you open a trust and start buying investments under the trust, what that means is the trust owns the assets and the trust has a trustee who is a person or a company that's sort of legally responsible for the assets within that trust. So, they're basically holding it and investing it on behalf of you. So, to use an example, um, you can, you know, you can have a trustee that's a company that is a trustee for a trust fund. Okay. So, let's use an example. So, let's say company ABC is a trustee for ABC Trust Fund. Um, And that's just a way that company acts as a trustee for the trust fund. So, why are trust funds tax efficient? Well, this is because any income that's earned from investments that's held within a trust are taxed at an individual level and not at the company level or trust level. So, let's assume there's a box and that box represents the trust fund. And let's assume you put toys in that box. Those toys represent the assets within that trust fund. And when those toys, you know, produce dividends or produce an income, then essentially that income can be distributed 
to what's called beneficiaries of that trust fund. So, for example, if you have two or three children, they can have access to those toys and the dividends that producing those toys, and those two or three kids can act as the beneficiaries. And that's called a discretionary trust fund. So, um, let, let's use an example to highlight this point, right? So, Amy is a doctor who has a high income and she wants to start investing in the stock market and open a trust fund and the plan is for her own assets um, to be under her trust account. So, she wants to buy assets and place it under the trust account. Now, she decides to regularly invest in the stock market and place all of the assets under her trust. Now, supposing over time she builds up a stock portfolio worth about a million dollars, and supposing it produces an income of about $40,000 per year, which is a sizable income, and we're not going to get dividends of 4% consistently, but I've kept the numbers simple so that I can highlight this point. Now, supposing she didn't have a trust account, how would, how would she be taxed? Now, she will own the $1 million under her own name, and that, that $1 million um, of assets, which is basically stocks. And she is a very high income earner, which means that she's going to be paying top marginal tax rates anyway of 45%. So the $40,000 income that's being produced by the stock portfolio, if she were to invest it in her own name, has to be added to her overall accessible income. And therefore, she may be liable for up to 45% uh, of taxation on that $40,000. Now, obviously, there's franking credits and frank dividends and all that, but still, you still have to top up the tax. So, her tax rate is 45%, and the company tax rate with any of these franking dividends and credits is only 30%. So, she would still need to pay an additional 15% difference in taxation if she you know, basically had all the assets of the stocks under her own name. Now, supposing she didn't do that, supposing she wanted to open a trust account and like the example, she had the $1 million of stock portfolio within the trust account Um, and she will need to have beneficiaries because a trust account is basically an account which has assets which is solely run and invested for the beneficiaries. It's for the benefit of the beneficiaries. And including Amy, uh, supposing she has a spouse who doesn't work and supposing she wants to have her parents also as beneficiaries, both are retired and they have a very limited income. So that means in total for the trust account, there are four beneficiaries, including Amy. And that's called a discretionary trust structure where the beneficiaries are discretionary. So, come income distribution time at the end of the year, which is usually during tax time or, you know, before to be safe, Amy decides to distribute $10,000 each to herself, $10,000 for each of her parents, and $10,000 to her spouse. Remember, there's a $40,000 income and she split that up into four bundles, $10,000 each. So, now the tax is only payable at the individual level. Remember, previously, Amy may have had to pay 45% tax on those dividends of $40,000, right, overall. But now because that income has gone via a trust structure and she has distributed that income to her beneficiaries, including herself, that taxation is only payable at the individual level. And we know that the individuals in her life that she's got beneficiaries like a spouse and her parents have very low income, which means they're going to have very little tax payable. And we know in Australia that there is no tax payable 
up until $18,200. So the first $18,200 is essentially tax-free. So essentially, the only tax she will pay is basically $4,500 on her 10K income because she's on a tax bracket of 45%. Um, and essentially the other beneficiaries like her parents and her spouse who have pretty much no income pay no tax on any of the $10,000 that Amy distributes to the other beneficiaries. Because remember, the first $18,200 is tax-free. Now, the question that I get asked all the time is, does the money have to actually hit the beneficiaries' accounts? Um, You need to check with your accountant on this one. I didn't think so, um, but it's always best to check with your accountant on the intricacies of this. Um, But I didn't think the money actually had to be distributed physically into their accounts. But obviously, if you're doing the right thing, you want to do the right thing by actually doing that. Um, So you can see that in this particular case, if Amy were to invest in an individual name and no one else, then she would be liable for a significant amount of tax, beg your pardon. But with a trust structure, she can potentially save, you know, several thousand dollars. Now, this is just based on a million dollar portfolio. Now, if you've got a two or three, four, five, six, or even $10 million portfolio, then you can see that the income adds up. And if you don't have a trust structure, then potentially you might be paying unnecessary high taxation amounts. So then the obvious question is, why isn't everyone doing this? Well, because it really depends on how much money you have to invest and how much money you want to build over the long term. Now, because to maintain trusts and create them, you need to do a business activity statement and you need to you know, have some compliance costs. So it costs money to actually maintain it. So your accountant will be sending you bills to maintain the trust structure. Um, so you would only think about this strategy, one, if you have a very high income and you're on the top tax bracket, And two, if you decide to have sizable investments or plan to have sizable investments moving forward. So it's not really a strategy for all income earners. Now, the general rule of thumb that I use, you know, when does it make sense kind of to create a trust structure, et cetera, is if you have around half a million dollars of investments or plan to have that, uh, it may make sense to have a trust structure. Uh, but of course, you need to run the numbers past yourself and also the accountant um, so that you know everything kind of um, adds up really well. Now, the other common question that I get is, can you have kids as beneficiaries under the age of 18? And generally speaking, there's no advantage of having children under the age of 18 because kids earning income pay the highest marginal tax anyway. But again, there are intricacies in this, so you need to check with your accountant about the details. I think the first 460 bucks or something like that, I don't know the exact figure, uh, can potentially be tax-free and then they get you know taxed at a high rate. So technically, you could have kids as beneficiaries, but um, I don't know the ins and outs of it. Um, so it's probably worthwhile um, asking your accountant or financial advisor about this. Now, before we move on, let's have a little ad break. And when I come back, we will continue the conversation of tax efficient strategies. 
If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Okay, so welcome back. Let's crack on with more strategies to save on tax. Now, the other strategy that you may want to think about is charitable donations. Now, this is a great way to save on tax and also do some good for the world with your money. Now, I'm a strong believer in money being a tool. I mean, it doesn't make me any happier than what I was. And I'm very fortunate to have a really high income and have a reasonably good net worth at a very young age. And I don't think that I'm any more happier now than when I was as a medical student um, with barely any income and, you know, living in very sort of, you know, cheap manner. So, providing income to charity and, you know, donating your money and giving it away, um, you know, does give you some sort of satisfaction. Um, And in Australia, in terms of charitable donations, generally speaking, any donation to a registered charity, which is greater than $2, is tax deductible 100% of the time. So, if you donate $1,000, you can claim a tax deduction on that amount fully. Um, Now, couple of caveats, you need to donate to charities which are officially registered as a charity. So, donating to your uncle or auntie or grandparents um, is not allowed, even if you call it a donation. You need to get a receipt for your donation. So, you need to show evidence of the donation and, um, you know, and, and you can't simply donate uh, to your local op shop and claim it as a deduction. It has to be a registered charity. So, there are some regulations on this um, and most registered charities know this and they do provide invoices. And, and, and receipts when you donate to them. So, it's not a big deal. Now, the other main way, which is, um, you know, probably something worth talking about in terms of tax efficiency is um, car deductions. Okay. So, this is always a, uh, you know, controversial topic, uh, particularly car deductions related to work. Now, generally speaking, there are you know, restrictions on what you can and cannot claim. Um, And usually it's only if you travel work to work, you can claim those deductions, okay? There are two main ways of doing that. 
The first way is called cents per kilometer, and the second way is called the logbook method. Um, so I'll just briefly go through the two methods so that you have a bit of an idea how this works, and we'll use some real-life examples to try and work this out. Now, the cents per kilometer method basically means you can claim up to um, you know 5,000 kilometers per year without a logbook, or if you have detailed um, plans of your travel, then essentially you can claim up to 71 cents per kilometer for the 2020-2021 financial year. So, uh, you know, up to $5,000, you don't need to show evidence, but anything more than 5,000 kilometers, beg your pardon, not dollars, but 5,000 kilometers, uh, anything more than that, you need to show evidence. So let's use an example to highlight this method. Amy is a doctor and works as a surgeon. Now, she has patients in three different hospitals as she practices privately. Therefore, she needs to travel from home to Hospital A, then Hospital A to Hospital B, and Hospital B to Hospital C. Now, usually on a daily basis, this means she travels around 65 kilometres, which is work-related. She's a small business operator as a privately operating surgeon and has a practice address. And she tends to attend her practice after doing all of her morning ward rounds at various private hospitals. So let's do some basic calculations here. Amy calculates for a five-day work week, she travels around 325 kilometers per week, which is work-related. Now, supposing she does this for 48 weeks per year, which is around 15,600 kilometers per year, Amy will need to maintain a detailed logbook to justify this. And she can claim up to 71 cents per kilometer, which works out to be around $11,000 in deductions per year. Now, the important thing about the cents per kilometer method is Amy can't claim any other expenses associated with the car in addition to what she's already claiming. So claims like registration, insurance, repairs, maintenance, all of that can't be claimed. So if she goes to cents per kilometer method, that's the only way she can claim it. Now, I drive an electric vehicle. Um, so the cents per kilometer for EVs is exactly the same as far as I'm aware. So if you're, you know, spending, you know, 15 cents per kilowatt hour to charge your EV, and certainly my charging is actually less than that because up to 50% of my charging is free from public charges, then essentially, if you're driving a lot, it makes sense to use the cents per kilometer if it's for work purposes, because you get 71 cents per kilometer while you're using only, you know, 7.5 to 15 cents in my case of kilowatt hour, which actually takes me a number of kilometers. So for me, if I was to use my car for work purposes, you know, claiming cents per kilometer just makes fascinating sense. Now, the other method is called the logbook method. Now, basically what that means is you've got to maintain a detailed logbook for 12 continuous weeks that's representative of your, you know, usual work week. You have to own the car and you've got to keep detailed records of each trip and you've got to keep all the receipts. So, your fuel, um, insurance, maintenance, servicing, uh, any interest on any loans, uh, depreciation, uh, and any other running costs like e-tag, all that sort of stuff. And once you complete all the details, you assign a percentage use for work-related or business use, and then you can make a claim. So using the same scenario as before with Amy being a surgeon and traveling to all those hospitals, she travels 15,600 kilometers per year. 
and she's kept all the receipts and all the records for her car expenses and calculates her car use to be around 40% related to her business work. Now, she works out that including all of the interest on loans and all of the fuel and all of the servicing and all of the maintenance, e-tax, insurances, etc., uh, it works out her deductions are around $19,000 per year, of which around 40% is claimable. And that only works out to be 7600 So in the previous example with the cents per kilometre, she was able to deduct up to $11,000 per year, whereas in this method, she's only deducting $7,600 per year. So which method can she use? Well, the rule is you can actually calculate both methods and pick out the best one that suits you. So in this case, you know, Amy decides to use the cents per kilometre method because this provides her with the greatest benefit. And this is completely legal to do. And she chooses that because that method is beneficial for her. So you can actually work it out with your accountant, which method is actually better for you. And a lot of people don't know that. They, they feel that they need to do the lesser of the two methods or the greater of the two methods. You just pick a method that suits you and that gives you the greatest benefit. Now, obviously, with COVID pandemic, you know, what about work-related expenses? I mean, some of the things that you can claim, which increases your tax efficiency, is um, it's a legitimate way to reduce your tax as much as possible. You know, COVID has meant that a lot of people work from home. Um, It's a reality for a lot of people, even healthcare workers. So, you know, some nurses that I know, Um, do telehealth from home, providing um, COVID advice or uh, COVID hospital in the home or all sorts of things. So um, it's a real flexible working environment. It also reduces your risk of catching the virus as well. So now there are specific rules about um, work-related claims and I've done a detailed tax series um, in my previous episodes, uh, which I think is from episode 95 to 99. This is when it was called Devraga Personal Finance. So if you're interested, go back and listen to that. And you also have to keep receipts about things like self-education expenses, uh, particularly useful for doctors and nurses um, who do a lot of self-education. It's actually mandatory for us to do it. Um, and they often have very long training times. You may have college expenses um, if you're doing specialty training or higher education expenses if you're doing postgraduate training, for example. Um, Now, the only thing is you can't claim hex fees as a deduction, uh, but you may be able to claim post-graduation fees, okay? So if you've got post-grad expenses like college fees, union memberships, professional indemnity insurance, workshops and CME expenses, um, CME means continuous medical education expenses, then potentially you can claim that. You need to run it past your accountant, of course. And one of the most common questions I get from doctors is, you know, Dev, can I just buy an AU, uh, AUD, which is a defibrillator, and chuck it in the boot of my car and claim the whole car as a heavy vehicle's expense. Now, that's a bit of a stretch. And I think a doctor's bag and or AED uh, is, you know, wouldn't be included, I think, as a heavy equipment or work-related tool. Uh, yeah, maybe there are some, you know, accountants there who may disagree with this, uh, but, but I think it, it just doesn't pass the pub test. I mean, if you're a pathologist who works in a lab and you carry an AED in the boot of your car, and AEDs are not that bulky anyway, they're, they're pretty small, you know, it doesn't pass the pub test. So, you know, work-related expense has to be related to your work. And, uh, you know, once I had a doctor who asked me, 
um, you know, oh, what do I think about claiming a course that they did where they learnt how to paint? Um, I mean, absolutely not. It has to be related to work. Um, and I can't envision uh, painting um, related to medicine, uh, you know, even if you're a plastic surgeon or a cosmetic surgeon that needs to, you know, draw lines on people before operating, I don't think you can claim a painting course as a legitimate work-related expense. Now, the other question that I often get is um, what about parking infringements and speeding fines on the way to work, you know, even if it was between workplaces? Is that claimable? I'm pretty sure you can't. Uh, I'm pretty sure you can't break the law and then basically ask for a tax deduction on the fine associated with that law being broken. So, you know, it's got to pass the pub test. So obviously don't speed, don't do anything silly. Um, and, you know, just make sure that you understand some of these tax strategies. Um, and one of the common things that I find with nursing staff who don't utilise um, a lot of these tax strategies because, you know, I mean, I shouldn't say nursing staff, but but a lot of healthcare workers just don't know that they can actually utilise a lot of these tax strategies, you know, legitimately, which is, you know, within legal frameworks to be able to do it. And you don't have to pay the top marginal tax rates every single time. So, you know, whether you're a doctor, nurse, paramedic, physio, doesn't matter. Just make sure you just, you know, ask your accountant, hey, is there any way that you can minimise taxes and remember, minimising taxes is legitimate. Um, tax evasion is not. And of course, as always, I wouldn't do anything just for tax minimisation. You need to do things which provide you with wealth building opportunities in the future. So don't do anything just for tax tax savings because that's just, you know, littered with uh, potential red flags if you just did that. Now, that's about it for this episode. Uh, In the next episode, we will focus on other tax efficiency strategies, uh, particularly when it comes to investing. So we'll talk about investment bonds, for example, uh, and also, of course, the, um, you know, grandfather of them all, the investment property deductions. We'll go into that in a little bit more detail. So stay tuned for that one. Um, So that's about it for this episode. Remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you may be using. And also actually write the reviews because any positive review is very helpful to get these podcasts in front of many listeners. And of course, it's free. So, um, you know, I want to be able to provide as much financial literacy to healthcare workers as I possibly can. Uh, So the more ratings, the more reviews that you leave, the more people get access to the podcast. It's as simple as that. So please keep them coming. This is Devraga from My Millennial Money Medical. And until next time, please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respect to their elders past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Market.